0: joining us online and a uh, special thank you to all of those folks who gave me those many bags of coffee. You um, hopefully will have that redeemed through the sermons that you hear and for those of you who pray even more so for that blessing and for anybody who wants to get up at the crack of dawn, I would be happy to grind and brew for you a cup of coffee and pray with you. So um, Special thanks for for that. Well, we're back this morning in Matthew's Gospel, and we're coming to the very end of the first section of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1 and 2, and this morning will be a little bit of a summary to bring it all to a conclusion as Matthew does. Um, Matthew brings us to the end of this section right before, as we get into Matthew chapter 3. He takes us from the end of Jesus' childhood in Nazareth, and then He's going to jump us, so to speak, into John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' adult ministry. And from there, He's going to take us to the cross and to the resurrection and to the Great Commission. Uh, But here in chapters 1 and 2, which is where we've been for a while, Matthew walks us through the genealogy and the birth of Jesus. And he does this... As you were called to show us what this gospel is all about, he's introducing us to his gospel, but more importantly, he's introducing us to Jesus, and he's introducing us to Jesus according to God's word. And this is what this gospel is all about. Matthew's gospel is all about who Jesus is, according. To God's Word. And from the very beginning of this gospel, God, through Matthew, is showing us that Jesus is a king. He is a king indeed, a ruler, a leader of men. But Matthew goes through and takes great pains to show us, and he does this by continually connecting the life of Jesus and the events with Old Testament uh, scripture quotes. He does so to show us that Jesus is a king like no other king. He is not an ordinary man. He is not an ordinary king. He is a radically different king who has come to bring a radically different kingdom and a radically different rule into our lives, into our hearts, into our families, into our church, and into our world. Radically different. And brothers and sisters, this essentially, I believe, is Matthew's big truth for Matthew chapter 1 and 2. That Jesus is a radically different king who has come to bring a radically different kingdom and rule. First into our lives, inside and out, but then into the world as well. And this is what he's showing us as we walk through Matthew 1 and 2. And this, I believe, sadly, is a truth that is rejected and has been rejected by men throughout the history of the world, but also, quite frankly, when you go from the Vatican to our mega-churches, it is a truth that is rejected, sadly, by many in the church as well. The truth that Jesus has come to bring real change. He's come to bring real change, and He's come to bring real change inside and out, And to do so comprehensively in the entirety of our lives, in the entirety of our church, and in the entirety, when he comes again, to the entire world. And it begs the question, is the kingdom, is the rule, is the change that Jesus brings, the kingdom and the rule and the change that you and I really want? In 2008, Americans chose Barack Obama to be our leader. America was looking for change from the Bush era and from the wars of that time and that season. And then in 2016, America, looking for change again, chose the anti-Obama, Donald Trump, to be our king. And then in 2020, we chose the white, anti-Trump, do you notice a pattern here? Americans love change. That's why Americans came to this country in the first place, be you a merchant or a Puritan. That's why our parents in a nation of immigrants came to this country. Change is what we value. And it's what we continue to look for to improve our lives, be it change in our marriages, change in our genders, changes in our careers, change in our jobs, change in our churches or our ministry or our lives. We long for change. But the good news of Matthew's gospel, brothers and sisters, is that God has given us real change. He's given it to us in one place and one place alone. And that's in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's in His kingdom, under His rule. And we don't get that change unless He is indeed our King, and unless we're willing to leave our kingdoms behind, whatever they may be, and we're willing by faith to follow Him as Savior and Lord and to come into the gift of His kingdom. The good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, and this is something that's lost, especially for many of us who have grown up in the church, right? We've grown up in the church, we've sang the hymns, we've been to the camps, we've done all these different things. And being a Christian, there's very little difference in our lives. It's more keeping on, keeping on. We're just doing what our parents told us to do would be a good and nice life. But the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, whether you were raised in the church, or whether you were not, is that Jesus brings real change. And this is because Jesus is no ordinary man, and he's no ordinary king, and he's come to bring a kingdom. And that means a rule. A rule that is according to God's word. A rule like no other kingdom in rule. A rule that, quite frankly, this world despises and most people don't want especially those who aspire to be rich and powerful and privileged in this world and in this life. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And you can go to chapter 2. I will read for you the first verse, 1-1. You don't have to turn there and then I'll drop down to verse 7 and we'll read a significant portion because Matthew was bringing us to the climax or the end of his introduction to Jesus. Matthew 1, one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we'll drop down to 2, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "'Rise!' And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord in the conclusion of Matthew's introduction to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You may have noticed that as we've walked through Matthew 1 and 2, God, through Matthew, has been intentionally contrasting two kings who are different in every possible way. One king, because of all his buildings and all the money he had and all the people he killed, will be called great. And the other will be called a Nazarene. And throughout the Gospels and Acts and throughout history, Nazarene will be the title that the world and those who reject the Gospel will give to Jesus and they will give to his followers. And this includes the Apostle Paul. As you read through the Gospels, as you read through Acts, they refer to Jesus' disciples as Nazarenes. Paul, they try and call him a Nazarene as well. And throughout the early history books with Uh, Josephus as well, they are referred to as Nazarenes. And in almost every case that this term Nazarene is used, it is being used as an insult. First century Nazareth was a country village which was pathetic in the world's eyes. And to be called a Nazarene was essentially what we would say in our day and age to call someone a redneck. But as the Apostle Paul needs to remind us repeatedly, especially a church and churches who so often we aspire to be like the world, as the Apostle Paul reminds us, 1 Corinthians 1, 27, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God did not choose to imitate the strong, the privileged, the wealthy, and the successful in this world. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. What God esteems, the world despises What God esteems, the world despises. And this is shown in our scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. You go from beginning to end, it happens over and over and over and over again. And God needs to remind His people repeatedly, What the world esteems, I despise. What I esteem, the world hates. And that is because the world is broken and darkened and blinded and depraved in its sin and its hatred for the Lord. And the testimony of God's word is that this is especially true what God esteems the world despises. This is especially true of the king and the kingdom and the gospel that our God esteems. God's king is despised by this world. God's kingdom is despised by this world. God's gospel, his good news, is bad news to the world. For first century Jews, the two cities that mattered, politically, religiously, and historically, were Rome and Jerusalem. Rome ruled the world, and Jerusalem ruled the lives of the Jews around the world, because Jerusalem is where the temple is. And Nazareth was a tiny rural village, 15 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee, and it was in a region that was a mix of Jews and Gentiles, many of them who had just come from elsewhere. And so it was an area that was despised by both Jews and Gentiles and was looked down on by both Jews and Gentiles. And to some degree, the same is true today in Nazareth, which is predominantly a Palestinian city. It's still where it was before. It's a city on a hill, but it is filled primarily with Arab Israelis. The majority who are Muslim, the minority who are Christians, and those who were Christians had left. I thought Nazareth was this wonderful place in Israel, and so I booked a medical elective to go and work there for six weeks. And I got detained in the airport by the El security for a few hours, not realizing that everybody looks down, especially the Jews, at Nazareth. As we go to the history books, we see that Nazareth was never mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament Scriptures, nor is it mentioned in any remaining historical documents prior to the first century. You go through Josephus, you go through the Talmud, you go through the Midrash, Nazareth is not mentioned, which suggests it was a new town. A new town probably of immigrants, of Jewish and Gentile exiles from different parts of the world who would come to make a go of things. And brothers and sisters, to be from Nazareth essentially was at that time to be from a place that was considered... A nothing place, historically, politically, and religious. It's not something that you went around and boasted about, that you were from Nazareth. And when Jesus and his disciples are being called Nazarenes, Jesus is essentially being called the king of nothing. And his disciples are the followers of nothing. They are a joke. It's a little bit like me saying, I'm the king of Milpitas. Right? I'm not from Cupertino. Cupertino. You sort of know where that goes, right? Leon Morris, New Testament scholar, says, Jesus the Nazarene, that title, carried with it the overtones of contempt. Contempt, scorn, scoffing. You stand over, you look down, this is less than important. This is less than important than I am. I am more important than this. Who are you? Where were you born? What do you bring to the table? And yet, brothers and sisters, the testimony of Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and the testimony of the Gospel is what is a joke to men is precious to God. What is a joke to men is precious to God. Let's stop there for a minute and think about how we look at one another. What is a joke to men is precious to God. Let's think about what we aspire to on our Instagram and social media and our posts of our our vacations, our weddings, and all, all of those different things. What is a joke to men and what we would never post many times is precious to God. And according to Matthew from Genesis onwards, all God's roads lead not to Rome, but they lead first to Nazareth. And from verse 19 through 22, God uses, as you go through that last section, He uses two heavenly messages. Explicitly, first, the angel comes to Joseph. Secondly, a dream, which is likely uh, the same thing an angel of the Lord coming to Joseph in a dream. He uses two heavenly interventions, and he uses one earthly dictator, Archelaus, who was the son of Herod and was apparently far worse than Herod, so bad that Rome had to pull him. Okay? God uses heaven and earth to bring Jesus to Nazareth. That's how important this is to God. And we see what Matthew shows us is from Genesis to Joseph, from Bethlehem to Egypt, from Egypt to Nazareth. According to Matthew, Nazareth is the culmination of everything that has come before in Scripture, in history, in heaven, and on earth. Why? Well, Matthew explains in verse 23, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that He, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. And with this summary statement, Matthew very clearly is pointing us to God, and very specifically to the word God has spoken through his prophets. And this brings us to our second point this morning. God's word reveals who he is and how he shepherds and saves his people. God's word reveals who he is and how he shepherds and saves his people. And where Matthew is taking us with this is he's showing us that who God is and how He saves and He shepherds His people is different from what the world is and how the world shepherds and allegedly saves its people. And the way in which God works and who He is and everything about God and the way He loves and cares for His sheep is consistently rejected and despised and looked down upon by the world. Brothers and sisters, this is a truth that God needs to say to us over and over and over again. When we despair, when we're discouraged, I don't look good, I'm not tall enough, I didn't get enough work done this week, I'm not esteemed, A, B, C, D, and E. All of those things that the world sells us that only increases our despair. If only you looked this way. If only you were married to this person. If only you had this job. If only you lived in this house. If only you drove this car. And we buy into all that garbage. And God shows us how He loves and how He rules and what He does is radically different from the world. Now, for many, Matthew's summary statement, verse 23, about Jesus being called a Nazarene is confusing and troublesome. And this is because neither the word Nazareth or the town Nazareth or those words, he will be called a Nazarene, are found anywhere in the Old Testament. So many people go through and they say, okay, well, where is this prophecy found? And they can't find it. And then basically the recurrent conclusion that comes up over and over again is... Matthew, once again, is being creative in order to explain away what is embarrassing in the life of Christ. Because in the first century, the fact that Jesus came from Nazareth, lived in Nazareth, and was referred to as a Nazarene, was an embarrassment. It's not something you put on a poster as, this is the man I worship, this is our King, our Messiah, our God. But if we carefully look and listen by faith... I believe we will see the problem here is not with Matthew, it's with us and how we handle God's Word and how we handle prophecy. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me for a few minutes because we're going to take a detour and we're going to go to the Old Testament and we're going to go to the issue of hermeneutics. How do we rightly interpret God's Word? Do we stand over it and draw our own conclusions or do we come under it and understand it in the way God calls us to understand this. And if we look through the first and second chapter, when you see Matthew every single time that there's a major life and event in Jesus' life, and he connects it with the Old Testament, and he says, so that it might be fulfilled, so that it might be fulfilled, so that it would be fulfilled, Matthew is showing us very clearly what he's doing, that he is being completely consistent in how he handles God's Word and how he looks to God's Word to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in our lives. Now sadly, our tendency is to use God's Word like King Herod does. We use it as a tool to fix my problem. I have a problem, I go to the Bible, I open it up, I find the verse, what do I need to do to fix it? And we think that the imperatives will get us to the indicatives. If I just do the right thing, I'll get to where God wants me to be, and I'll be a better person, and everything's going to be tickety-boo. But, brothers and sisters, that reverses the gospel, because the gospel is the good news, not of what I do to save myself so that I'm tight with God. Those are all the other religions of the world, including our jobs and careers and our Instagram accounts, okay? The gospel is the good news of what God has done to save sinners like you and I through the life and through the death and through the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now we're totally depraved sinners. And without Christ, our tendency is to flip it because that's a narrative that makes me look good. This is what I do, this is how I live, this is where I go. And if you can walk like me and talk like me, then you can be like Eminem, right? You can be that celebrity, right? Well, it's very opposite with the Lord. It's completely different. And when we think about that, that's very much how we handle our scriptures. If I just know how to read my Bible correctly, if I just get the right answers, if I just study and get all the attributes of God, I'm going to be good. I'm going to get the answers to my questions I'm going to be able to serve my king and everything is going to be good. But when we come to scripture, we see Matthew handles scripture very differently as do the prophets. Matthew looks at scripture as a gift of God's word that's been given to help me rightly know and love and trust God. To help me know who God is. To help me appreciate what God is doing in my life. And help me to know what God expects of me. Which is this, very simply. To love and trust Him for who He is, according to His word. That's what God expects from all of us. That's the summation of all the commands. From Genesis to Revelation. Will we love and trust God for who He is, according to His word? And will we trust Him? That even if I don't understand or I haven't got it figured out or I don't have everything that the world has, He's going to love me and He's going to take care of me. Brothers and sisters, when we turn that around and we go to Scripture as the remedy for my life, we use God's Word in a self-serving and arrogant way. And what ends up happening is, like most pagans, we tend to think of prophecy as prediction. I'm going to say that again. We tend to think of prophecy as prediction because that's the way the religions of the world work. You go to your fortune teller, you find out from him and her what the gods are saying, and then you adjust your life so that it will go well with you and you'll get a step up. How do I fit God into my agenda? We tend to think of prophecy. Okay, something's predicted in the Old Testament. Something's predicted in the book of Revelation. This is the fascination with Revelation. Ooh, ah, this is what God's going to predict. This is the date that Jesus is coming back. This is when it's all going to burn. Let me figure it out so I can run to the hills and build my little place and I can do okay. And we reduce God to a fortune cookie, right? Where we pull that fortune out and we look for the lotto numbers on the back and we hope we win big. But from the very beginning of his gospel, Matthew clearly shows us God's word is something greater than a fortune cookie. God has given us his word through his prophets to show us who God is, to show us what he is doing in our lives, and to show us what he expects of us. Very simply, to love and to trust him for who he is according to His word, and not according to ours. To show us that He is a shepherd king who loves and cares for us. And the story of His gospel and the story of His word is how He is bringing us back to Him. That's what it's all about, brothers and sisters. God created us to be with Him. God created you and I to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How do we do that? We don't do that separately. Right? It's like me getting married to Julie and say we're gonna live in separate houses. Woody Allen did that. Right? You don't know no. You don't get married to live in separate houses. You get married to live and be together. Right? Willie and Lucy, is that an amen? Okay. God created us to be with him, brothers and sisters. That's the whole purpose and point. And sin separates and it divides. And it separates us from the Lord. And throughout the history of God's people and throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, there are three foundational works of God, three foundational events, that the prophets point us back to over and over and over again when they speak to God's people. Why do they do that? They're pointing back to these events to show us who God is, what He's doing in our life, and what He expects of us. And those three foundational events are creation, exile, and exodus. Creation, exile, and exodus. Creation beginning in Genesis reveals to us that God is the Creator King. And everything good we have was created by God and His Word, and He is the giver and sustainer of life. Apart from Him, there is nothing good, and apart from Him, there is no life. What's God doing in our lives? He's intervening in our lives to give us a life that we do not have because we're dying. Exile reveals God is the just and holy king. He judges sin. He doesn't let us get away with doing evil and wrong. And in love, He judges sin. And in love, He judges sinners according to His Word. And so we see this with Adam and Eve in the garden. They sin. He judges them. He cares for them. But He sends them out of the garden. They're separated from fellowship from God. And then we see this in the history of the Old Testament with God's people. They say, we're going to live in our own kingdom, we're going to be our own kings, and we're going to follow all the kings and kingdoms of this world because God, that's the king, and those are the kingdoms we want. We don't want you as king, and we don't want your kingdom. So what does God do? Same thing He does with Adam and Eve. I'm going to let you know. I'm going to work in your life. I love you. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to send you out of the promised land and away from fellowship. This is what you want. You will know what it's like to have the kings and the kingdoms of the world and to no longer have fellowship with me. And why does God do that? He does that to bring them to the end of themselves. So they're no longer about, I'm going to do all these great things and be my own king. No, I'm going to humble myself before the mighty hand of God. I'm going to remember what it was like when I had fellowship with the king. To bring them to the end of themselves. And to see their desperation and need for a creator king. A God who is holy and good. And finally we have Exodus. Exodus where God reveals that he is a merciful and gracious and faithful shepherd king. It's not like the other kings. It's not like the other kings who sits at a distance and squeezes you to get every last dime out of you. He is a merciful and gracious and faithful shepherd king who comes to his people to redeem them and to save them and to bring them out of exile, out of slavery, out of the kingdoms of this world and to bring them home and to bring them back into his kingdom. How does he do that? Well, in the Old Testament with Moses, he spoke... To Moses, but he also set up the tabernacle with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day to let people know that he was present with them. I love you. I'm going to provide a way through the sacrifices to be with you. And as you walk through this wilderness, I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to bring you home and I'm going to make you my people. He is the good shepherd of Psalm 23, who walks through the valley of the shadow of death, and we will fear no evil because He is with us. Okay, when we come to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, explains that these events that happened in the Old Testament happened as an example for us. To warn us against idolatry, And the word, for example, he uses is the word type or tupos. And the word type or tupos means a mark that comes from something being struck. And it's the idea of a coin where they would strike it or pound it and the image of the king would be left on that piece of metal. And that piece of metal's value comes not from the metal itself per se, but from the image of the king. To show that this piece of metal belongs to the king. And I believe what Paul is pointing out to us is these events that happen in the Old Testament, God is sharing with us a message and a story through the lives and through the history of the saints in the Old Testament. And the value comes is that they are struck by God, they bear His image, and they show us who God is, what He's doing in our lives, and what He expects of us. And so when Matthew uses this phrase, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet prophet or prophets, he's not narrowly saying, okay, prophecy is prediction. He's saying to us that prophecy, the Old Testament prophets, were speaking to the people of God a message. And God's words and message to His people about who He is, what He's doing, and what He expects. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is the good news of God's plan of salvation for His people. And this is the divine message and story that begins in the Old Testament, but finds its completion where? The end of the story, the fulfillment, the completion of the story, the completion of all God began with creation, with the exile, and with the exodus. The salvation of His people, bringing them home out of the darkness, is going to be completed and fulfilled. And we're going to see most fully who God is. We're going to see most fully how He works in our lives. We're going to see most fully what He expects of us. in the King, who is the complete image of God's glory. And this is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, in those first two chapters, Matthew is walking through and saying, See, 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 these are all things that the world despises, but these are things that God esteems, and they are all connected with creation, exile, and exodus. Every aspect. And this brings us to our third and final point for this morning. Jesus is the King of God's Word who is esteemed by God but is despised by the world. Jesus is the King of God's Word who is esteemed by God but is despised by the world. Brothers and sisters, so often what we want in this world is what destroys us because our hearts are sinful and our desires are sinful. That's who we are. And God is so gracious and good. He does not give us the king or the kingdom that we want. He does not give us the kingdoms that we want. Why don't I have a spouse? Why don't I have a boyfriend? Why don't I have a girlfriend? Why don't I have the house, the job, and the career? Brothers and sisters, if God loves you, He's not going to give you the kings and kingdoms of this world. He's going to give you something much better. He's come to give you A king and a kingdom who are radically different from this world. And this is the summation of Matthew 1 and 2, where Matthew is repeatedly pointing us back to show us this. And so very briefly, I'm going to walk you through the scripture quotes to show you, I hope, what Matthew is doing. Matthew 1.1, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in that first section, Matthew walks us through a genealogy of Jesus that starts in Genesis with Abraham, and it goes to King David, and then it goes to the exile or the deportation, and then it's fulfilled and completed in the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what he shows us as he walks through is Jesus is indeed a king, and he is the king of God's word. He is the king of God's promise, of the line of David, but he is not like the kings of this world. And what he is, is he's the gift of a new beginning. And then when you drop down to Matthew one twenty two, when Matthew writes, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is pointing out the only king and the only person who can give you a new beginning is God Himself. That's the summation of the whole story in the Old Testament. The whole story in the Old Testament is the Lord is salvation. Joshua, Hosea, and then Jesus. All of y'all think that you're going to find salvation by negotiating a deal with Assyria, with Egypt, with all the kings around you. And what you are rejecting is that God alone can save you and deliver you from your enemies, your biggest enemy of all your own sin. God is not a king who takes care of his people from a distance. God is a king who comes and indwells This king who will save his people from their sins is God, who enters into the lives and the exile of his people to complete his word and work that he began in Genesis, of a holy kingdom where the creator king dwells with his people. This is a kingdom that Adam and Israel and King Herod reject, and this is the kingdom that Joseph and Mary accept by faith. And what happens to Joseph and Mary? As they walk with Christ they have a new beginning, they have a new life, and they have a new family with Christ. Then as we come to Matthew two one, as the Magi appear in Jerusalem, and they bring the good news of the birth of God's king, to King Herod, verse five and six, two five and six, Matthew writes, for so it is written by the prophet, referring to Micah, and you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. God's indictment of the kings of the Old Testament is that they were not shepherds, priests and prophets and kings of the Old Testament. You're not shepherds of my people. You don't love them. You don't protect them. You don't feed them. You don't watch over them. You exploit them and you take advantage of them. You're building kingdoms of your own and you're using my sheep to do it and you will be judged. But one day I'm going to send a king who you all reject and think nothing of and he will be a shepherd ruler. Not like y'all living in your palaces with all your bling. A ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so we see Jesus' birth in Bethlehem completes God's promise of a ruler who comes from the least of the villages of Judah, a different kind of king, a different kind of ruler, not like the world, a shepherd king who leads his people to safety and home. How does he do that? He enters into their exile, he enters into their darkness. He spends the evening with his sheep, not in the city, but out in the hills. And we see that this is a ruler who the Magi, by faith, are willing to leave everything to go and worship, and who the chief priests and King Herod in Jerusalem are unable to leave their palace and their kingdom to even begin to consider. And then with Jesus' flight from Bethlehem into Egypt, we read... In verse 17 and 18 and 16, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. And that's verse 15. And then you drop down to verse 17 and 18, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. That's from Jeremiah. And these two references from Hosea and Jeremiah are a reference to the exodus and the exile. The exodus and exile of the Old Testament. And here Matthew shows us that what Jesus is doing is He is walking step by step by step. And He's retracing the steps of the story that began in the Old Testament. A story of judgment and a story of salvation. That Jesus has come into this world and He has left behind His glory and He has allowed the Father to exile Him to come to our crappy little planet and to live in a city, in a town that nobody wants to live in and everybody looks down on. Why does He do it? Out of love for the Father and obedience to the Word To fulfill and complete the story. That God's king is a king who will bear our sorrow and our shame. He will bear the rejection that we deserve. He will receive exile and separation on the cross. Why? So that he can lead us, brothers and sisters, out of the darkness and into the kingdom of his light. There's a big message here, brothers and sisters. Jesus hasn't come into your life and He doesn't rule in this church so that we can keep on living the same lives we've always lived and that our parents lived before us. He didn't die on the cross so that we could stay the same and so that we could be enslaved by the same sins and the same anxieties and the same fears. In love, He has come and dwelt with us so that He can carry us and bring us, if by faith we are willing to let Him carry us out of the darkness and into the light. And that brings us to the final statement, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that He would be called a Nazarene. Now the reason, brothers and sisters, we cannot find this in the Old Testament, if you look very carefully at what Matthew says here. He says, "...so that what was spoken by the prophets," plural, "...might be fulfilled." And here I believe Matthew is pointing out very clearly, I'm not quoting one specific prophet or one specific verse, but I'm providing you with a summary of the entire message of the Old Testament, a summary of the words of all the prophets. Their message of who God is, what He's doing, and what He expects of us. That the king of God's word will enter into our exile, that he'll lead us through the exodus, and that he will bring us to a new beginning, a new kingdom, a new family of God's word. But guess what? He's going to do it in a way that is despised and rejected and looked down on and reviled by the world. Psalm 11822, which is quoted repeatedly through the New Testament, "The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's what we read last week. And 1 Corinthians 1:27, 1, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, to show us who He is. What He's doing and what He expects of us. Nazareth, brothers and sisters, is the summation of all that God is doing and it points ahead to what God is going to do. It points to the cross. And Matthew, I believe very clearly in the beginning, is showing, hey, all of Scripture, it points to the reality that there is one way of salvation and it leads, brothers and sisters, to the cross. It leads to the place where the Lord brings us to the end of ourselves and He shows us who Jesus is, a holy King who is giving His life and shedding His blood for your sin and mine to bring us to a place of repentance and faith not in ourselves or the kings or kingdoms of this world, but one place and one place alone our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Could I have my last slide, please? What Matthew does in these first two chapters is he shows us how the life of Christ is, the fulfillment of God's Word. And he shows how it affects two different groups of people, Joseph and Mary on the one side, and Herod and the chief priests. Joseph and Mary, by faith, receive who Jesus is. He becomes their treasure, they walk with Him, and guess what? They have to go to Egypt, and they have to go to Nazareth. And they live lives of exile with Jesus. And eventually, the Lord will bring them, and bring Mary in particular, to the cross. It's interesting, the last thing we read about with Joseph is how he obeyed the word of the Lord and how God in him and through him fulfilled his word in the Old Testament. Their lives become rejected, just like Jesus' life. I think Matthew is pointing to the disciples who are reading this and giving them encouragement and saying, listen, if you follow Jesus... Your rejection by the world affirms that you're following God's king and not the kings of this world. Because if you were following the kings of this world, you wouldn't be persecuted right now. And everything would be tickety-boo in the short term. But you're going to lose everything. On the other hand, you have King Herod. And you have the chief priests and the scribes who refuse to leave their kingdoms, who live by fear and not by faith. And this tension exists throughout the gospel until it leads to the cross. And in, these, in the end, these men, who out of fear tried to secure their kingdoms of this world for eternity, will lose everything. Brothers and sisters, Matthew has shown us the good news of the gospel. And through the lives of Joseph and Mary, he's showing us that Jesus does indeed bring real change for real people. And he does so through faith and repentance, by which all he's asking us to do is simply to love and trust Jesus for who he is according to God's word. A love and trust that is expressed very simply by walking with him. Brothers and sisters, whether you're rich or poor, that is good news. It is good news that will bring you to the cross. It will bring you to the end of yourself. And there lies the tension. But brothers and sisters, as God brings us to the end of ourselves, He brings us to Christ. And He gives us a king who is radically different than the kings of this world. And He brings us into a kingdom that is radically different from the kingdoms of this world. He gives us the pearl of great price. He gives us the treasure of infinite worth. Brothers and sisters, He gives us Himself. Do you want real change, brothers and sisters? Do you read your Bible to figure out all the things that you need to do or know about God? Or are you willing to walk by faith with the King who fulfills all of God's good promises in you. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you have come to change us. You have come to be our King. Thank you for bringing us a kingdom that is rejected by men, but is esteemed by your Father in heaven. Lord Jesus, help us to see with your eyes and to see the joy and delight of what it means to be on a path that ultimately is about being with you. In your name we pray. Amen.